conversation. But try to get an employer that is as willing to re- uh, reward you for mediocrity as the Toronto Maple Leafs are, apparently. Uh, never has a professional sports team accomplished so little but given its employees so much. Sheldon Keefe signing a two-year extension with the Toronto Maple Leafs yesterday that will take him through the 25-26 season. Yes, he has an incredible regular season record, 166-71-30. and 30. And yes, five straight playoff appearances. And yes, third highest regular season winning percentage of any active NHL head coach. But you know the caveat, 13-17 and 17 in playoff games, 1-5, and five, series record and despite all the regular season success they've never won the division outside of that one weirdo north division title if they had won one atlantic division they could have kept themselves away from the boston bruins at the tampa bay lightning they, they haven't done that and i i get it he's a lame duck head coach um they bring him back new gm and there's only a new gm because the previous gm didn't accept his extension and talked his way out of town. So, yes, this organization, uh, I, I think you understand, the bar is low. They exceeded it by winning a round last year, despite losing in five games to the Florida Panthers in round two. Uh, with that being said, let's talk to our pal, Luke Fox of Sportsnet. Happy summer, Luke. Yeah, happy summer, Ben. How have you been? I, I've been good, man. I've had a, I've had a great summer. I'm, I'm nice and tanned. What's your, what's your tan level? Oh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I, I burn easily, though, so that's a bit of an mm, issue. So I, I would have guessed that. I am uh, getting ready for some Twilight Golf right after this conversation, oh. and I'm going to lather on three to four layers of sunscreen, I think. Okay. I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to keep you from that. That's, that's a good call. <laughs> so you and I are opposite because I'm going to play at like 6.50 in the morning uh, tomorrow. But uh, you enjoy your, your nighttime golf. So I think, Luke, um, your Twitter poll indicated what I just uh, – was talking about and that being the bar for success for this Toronto Maple Leafs team and I don't know if it's entirely unfair but yeah they went around which was it was the the absolute bare minimum that they they had to do last year and they 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 did that and then won one game in the second round you you tweeted out hey Leaf fans do you agree with the two-year extension for Sheldon Keefe the majority of respondents said yes which I, I understand the reasons for it, but deserve seems like a, a bit of a stretch. Um, what would you say to the idea that this is actually, despite you know other people's notions about this market, kind of not the most difficult as far as uh, criticism is concerned? No, I, I agree with you, Ben. I mean, they've lowered the bar so dramatically over the past twenty years that winning one playoff round feels like a, a really big step forward. And I don't want to take anything away from Sheldon Keefe. I actually do think he's a a really good regular season coach. I think his devotion to the profession and to the team is off the charts. Like I'm sometimes I've worried that he's a bit of a workaholic and just because he's so passionate about it. uh, I think he cares deeply. It's not as if he's taking this job lightly, but you know, when I consider the fact that when he's gone head to head with other coaches, and many of those times he's had home ice advantage. Many of those times I would argue that he's had the better roster of hockey players on paper. Uh, they haven't won enough series. I, I think he has been out coached in the playoffs a number of times. And, uh, you know, this extension, I, I think, is, shouldn't come as a surprise 
Um, I think the big decision came whether to bring him back or not. If you're going to bring him back, it makes perfect logistical sense for an organization that has crazy deep pockets like MLSC Mm -hmm. to take away the lame duck status and eliminate the distraction and give the coach who you've decided to go with some peace of mind and his voice will carry a little more weight in the dressing room if everyone in the world isn't, you know, freaking out because he doesn't have an extension. But the mere decision to bring him back shows that, hey, we're okay with running everything back. Um, and, and I wonder if part of it is because they looked around and said, well, who's the better option? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and I get that part. And I, I also get the part of, hey, you're, it's your first year as, as general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Also, you took over in the middle of an offseason and, and maybe some potential candidates are off the table. But also, like, you do you, – you don't – like – Brad for living isn't looking at the clock on his tenure in Toronto. Yeah, they haven't even played a game under him. But you do, like, you, when you bring in your own guy, when you fire another head coach, you do kind of start at least some sort of clock on, on your own job tenure. So so I, I understand that part. The, the lame ducks stuff, I, I also understand a little bit. But as far as, like, yeah, the accepting mediocrity or at least, like, the accountability stuff, Maybe I'm making too much of a big deal of it, but we keep talking year after year after year about, you know, breaking up the big four and that never happened or firing the head coach or Kyle Dubas uh, being relieved of his duties. And that finally eventually happened. But again, like I said, uh, Brendan Shanahan initially wanted to bring him back before they even figured out, you know, how deep this team was going in, in, in the postseason. Do you think there's something to just that that overall philosophy that is top down with this Toronto Maple Leafs organization. Yeah, it's it's kind of in status quo, right? And how you view it, I think, depends on how much you value stabil, uh, like stability and, and not having too much turnover versus the word you used, which I think is a great one, accountability. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's I don't think there's ever been a sense of fear, no. right? Like it's like Austin, we're bringing you back. Yep. Mitch, we're probably going to bring you back. You have full no move. Willie, even him, there wasn't like, well, we're going to explore everything. We're going to explore the trade market. Every, everything Trey Living has said is, no, we're going to keep grinding away and try to bring them back. We don't want to lose talent. We don't want to lose good people. All indications are you're just rearranging the, the fringes of this roster. And he has done that. Like, like he is, has taken a bit of a different approach with Bertuzzi and, and Domi and Reeves. Um, but the belief is kind of the same, same nucleus. Maybe if we surround them with different faces and different capabilities, maybe that will get them over the hump. Um, and ultimately, I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't have another great regular season. Sure. I look at, I look at around the competition, Boston lost its top two centers. Yep. The salary cap keeps eating away, like slowly eroding the talent in Tampa Bay. Yep. It's, you know, you know, they lost Kalorn, they lost Ross Colton, they lost basically their whole fourth line. Like that team is, is starting to decline slowly. I still have a lot of respect for, you know, Point Headman, Sam Ghost, Kucherov. They still have great pieces, but they're not quite as good, uh, at least on paper, as they were last season. So it's not inconceivable that the Maple Leafs win this division and have another great regular season. And it's going to can't come down to the same old questions. And, and it gets a little boring. You want to have a fresh take on it. But really, it's like, when are they going to get done in the playoffs? Now, the extension for Keith, I don't think that means he's immune. I don't yeah. think this mean, means he's automatically going to be the coach of this team for the next three years. I still think they need to prove it and have some success for him to keep his job. 
Yeah, it's hard to imagine a scenario, though, where where he is fired in the middle of the season. I guess it would take something that, like, yeah, like you said, it seems like it seems pretty clear that they're going to have regular season success again this year unless something goes completely haywire. And, you know, I mean, one of those areas that could go haywire is in goal. It's the most important position, although I think we're pretty well established that Delia Samsonov is at least in league average, if not uh, better than league average goalie. And Joseph Wall looks pretty damn good and has a pretty good AHL resume as well the the firing thing though is interesting because you know we we heard from multiple people that while they were still paying off mike babcock it was actually not all that feasible or at least uh mlse wasn't all that willing to eat any more salary now that mike babcock's done being paid and is back in the, in the nhl do you think that actually impacts some decision making well i think a little bit like you don't just do it on a whim but you know if the team flames out in the first round you know, I, I don't think they would hesitate. I mean, they, just consider the how deep the pockets are there. Um, you know, you don't no no ownership wants to eat millions of dollars worth of salary. But I'm we don't know the number that Sheldon keeps getting paid. But I, I would you know feel pretty confident saying it, it's not at Mike Babcock's level. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's this is his first NHL job. So uh, you know, I, I don't think they would hesitate to eat something if it meant making the team better or Brad True living said enough is enough and and i think people should also remember you know Trey living did the took this same approach when he was first hired as gm of the calgary flames bob hartley was the coach at that point and he was given the option and and he decided to stick with the guy he inherited save his bullet and hartley won the the jack adams that year and and eventually he did let him go before mm-hmm. his contract was up like he used that bullet but i i understand it from the coach's point of view the other thing i think people need to realize is if Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner uh, said, we, we don't want to play for this guy, he probably would have been gone. Like Trey Living did his due diligence talking to all these players, the core players, about, about their feelings on Keith. And he came back saying the players trust him. The players like him. They believe they're in this, in this with him. So the players have endorsed this coach too. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's an important point. No, that's where I, I wanted to go next, which, yeah, is yeah. this isn't Mike Babcock having to go to fly down to Arizona every offseason and, t- and talk to Austin Matthews, right? Like, it, it does feel like they're on the same page. Although, like, the, the, the devil's advocate argument would be, hey, hey, maybe this team needs a, a head coach that they're, they're not, like, so in love with, that they're not dying to, to have come back. Maybe they do need to be pushed. Maybe they need to be put in a, an uncomfortable situation, which, I mean, goes to the accountability thing. Yep, and I think that's a very valid point. And I, I guess the question that they probably came down to is, is who is that? And do you want to, in you know, realize this decision to bring him back was made before Austin Matthews put pen to paper? Yeah, and that was the number one pri- that was that's the number true. one priority, right? Mm-hmm. The keeps extension came after, but the decision to bring him back mm-hmm. was made after. So don't fool yourself into thinking that the order of these things is, you know, accidental. No, it's a great, great, uh, great point. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about this is that yeah, Guy Boucher is brought into the fold uh, as a, one of Sheldon Keefe's assistants. Got pretty good NHL track record. I mean, this organization has done it before as far as, you know, well, I mean, Sheldon Keefe was was the, the next head coach in waiting with the Marlies, as was Paul Maurice. Like, this is... I guess those guys weren't assistants, uh, and it's a little different if, if your potential successor is, like, standing next to you on an NHL bench. But do you think there's anything, too? I, I'm sure a lot of fans thinking about that, that if things go haywire, Guy Boucher is the next guy. 
Yeah, that would be the the next logical um, thought, right? And and we've seen that in other markets. I remember around this, well, just shortly after this time last year, when the New Jersey Devils got off to a horrific start, and Lindy Ruff was in a lame duck season, and his assistant was Andrew Burnett, yeah. who had just been fired by the Florida Panthers, and the Florida Panthers had uh, finally won a round, and they won the President's Trophy. Everyone in the hockey world is like, well, if the losing continues, it's only natural that Burnett's going to take one step to his left and take over for Lindy Ruff. So, you know, the Keefe extension alleviates a little bit of that, but that is still an option. And Trey Living, when we talked to him yesterday, kind of spun it in the positive, saying that Guy Boucher was not, you know, Trey Living's decision alone. It was actually Keith that pushed for Guy Boucher, uh-huh. and he's, he positioned as that shows Keith's leadership that he's willing to uh, have a guy as his assistant who actually has more playoff experience, more playoff wins, more regular season experience, uh, pretty respected head coach over his time in the NHL. And, but he wanted him because he thought he was the best man for the job, even though people like me or, or you might say, hey, uh, they have another experienced head coach that could take over in a, in a snap of a finger um, if things go sideways. So we're gonna we got a whole regular season to talk about this about expectations for this group and what's what's the the bar of success. I I think now that we're past the winning around thing, it sh- it should be Stanley Cup. But who the hell knows, right? Like, yeah, I mean, everybody gets lifetime extensions. Maybe if if they win two two games in the second round, who <laughs> who knows? But it has to be at some point, right? Like that 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 there wasn't a major shakeup after yet yet another playoff uh, uh, flame out despite the fact that it came in the second round instead of the first round, a first round, by the way, that they got outplayed in the majority of the, the six games against the Lightning. Um, I mean, is it not Stanley Cup or bust? I, I mean, I, I guess you got to see it to, to to make a judgment on that, but like, we're, we're past this one round thing, are we? We got to be. Now, I don't know if we're Stanley Cup or bust. Like if, okay, what if they went to the final and lost to, to the Golden Knights? Uh, or the Dallas Stars, and Jake Godinger stood on his head. Like, I don't, I don't know if it's, we're quite there. I would say win two rounds and be competitive, threaten to win the third round. Like, if they <laughs> bow out to the – I'll just pick a team, the Carolina Hurricanes, yeah. in, in the Eastern Conference Final, and the Hurricanes grind it out over six or seven games, and there's a bunch of one-goal games in overtimes, I, I don't think at that point you're saying, ah, this, this team's garbage. They have to, I, in my mind, they have to win two rounds and they have to look competitive and, and in the third. I, I think it's the way they lost the Panthers. They yeah. were never in that series. I, th- I think that's, that's what left a sour taste. No, no doubt. Um, yeah, and they'll, they'll have Austin Matthews beyond this season for four more as he signs the, the extension worth 13.25, making him the highest paid player in the NHL on an annual average value perspective uh so that takes him beyond john Tavares's tenure at least contractual obligation uh the toronto maple leafs he's the captain john Tavares is as we well know and you know what you can go back and play revisionist history on the 11 year uh or the 11 million seven year deal that he was given but i don't think anybody was complaining at the time and you know what he, he's still been a product uh, productive nhler and who could have predicted the the pandemic that came afterwards i do wonder like Okay, maybe John Tavares stays beyond the two years he has left on that remaining deal as like a, a, a minimum salary type dude. It does feel like eventually this is going to lead to a situation where Austin Matthews is named captain 
And I don't know if this is more fan stuff or like sports talk radio stuff, but you know, that's what we're doing right now. Do you think it, there's an argument to be made that the, the captaincy should just be handed over to Austin Matthews? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess you can make the argument. The, the counter would be that, you know, when we spoke to John Tavares at the end of the season on, on Walker Cleanout Day, uh, he was asked about, you know, would he even entertain the idea of waiving his no-move clause? And not only did he say no, he brought up the captaincy at that point, which wasn't part of the question that was asked to him. He said, I love being Maple Leaf. I want to stay here. I love being the captain of this team, and the captaincy mm-hmm. means a lot to me. So, you know, I don't think Austin uh, is all worked up about the fact that the letter on his on his sweater is an A and, and not a C. Would he have liked it? I, I suspect he would have at the time. But, you know, there's a lot of responsibilities that come with it that, you know, he's still a, a leader. Tavares always defers to Matthews. Um, you know, he's not – you don't get the sense that there's a power struggle on this team. He often refers to him as the best player on the team, you know, best player in the world, that type of thing. I, I don't think there's any friction. I think Tavares is happy to to have the seat. Maybe there's a, a transition down the road. Uh, like you said, you know, the timing of, of Tavares' contract running out might be a good time. Um, and if there is a transition, I think it would be a smooth one. I don't I don't think it, you know, it would be amicable, am, uh, sorry, acrimonious between the, the two of them. All right, I got a couple more before we let you go out to, to the golf course. So yeah. still like radio silence on William Nylander, unless you're following his Instagram and you get to see shirtless pics of him in Central Pay. Um, but yeah, it does feel like the closer we get, like it's going to be September tomorrow. I, I don't know, Luke. It seems unlikely at this point in, in, in I think most people's eyes that, that an extension is, is going to get done, not just the fact that it hasn't been done, but like every report uh, indicating that William Nylander, as is his want, and like, yeah, then, then nobody's going to discount um, or, or or criticize him for wanting top dollar, but that he wants double-digit millions per year uh, in any extension for a guy that scored 40 goals last year. I, do, do you see any scenario where where this gets done before the regular season? And if it doesn't, is it just the Leafs playing out the string with him? Yeah, I, I'd, be, I'd be floored if it got done. Um, I think the only way it gets done is if, Brad Tree Living buckles and gives them what he's asking for. So, you know, in any negotiation, your, your ask is always super high. The other team counters something low. You know, the, the last reported was the Leafs are, are looking at something in the, that begins with an 8. And Willie's looking with something that begins at a 10. And uh, you project that over 7, 8 years, that's a, a lot of money. So they're, they're very far apart. There is no deadline that you know, you can make up this pretend deadline of reporting to camp with a contract, but nothing ruffles this guy's feathers. He's not going to be worried about answering a few questions about going into a contract here, and he's, he's proven it. He took his last negotiation literally down to the 11th hour, like, yeah. like um, which very few hockey players do. So he has the stomach for this. He is going to get paid, um, and the Leafs are going to have a decision to make. I think the next real pressure point will be the trade deadline. And Trey Living assessing the team, how's the mix? Are we getting enough defense? Uh, you know, can I? is there a real, you know, I don't think you're going to win a Nylander trade, but is there a trade that makes the team more complete and more ready for playoffs? That's something maybe he considers. Otherwise, he might say, shrug his shoulders and say, we got him at 6.9 this year. That's fantastic value for a 40-goal scorer. 
and then maybe we'll revisit trying to re-sign him after the season. Um, those are basically his three options. And Nylander, you know, he, he, he seems in no rush. He said, he said the very same thing. He's in no rush. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if they just start the season with him. Yeah, seems like that's the way. Uh, all right, La- last one, last one. This is a very much an August 31st uh, hockey question. Uh, so Phil Kessel was reported by our own Elliot Friedman that he wants to keep playing even if it means not continuing the Iron Man streak and taking a minimum contract and, and being that type of player um, to, to finish his career. I mean, this is pie-in-the-sky stuff, but like if, if the Leafs were interested, how, how do you think he would be received here? Of course, part of salute game, but man, he was just a, a spectacular offensive force and such a different player since the, the, the Maple Leafs uh, waved goodbye to him to, to Pittsburgh. How do you, how do you think a, a Phil Kessel reunion would look? Well, he's got the magic touch, right? He's a winner. Yes. Uh, yeah, more cups in the room, more rings in the room. I, I think the fans will love him. I, I think Phil has turned himself into, like, one of the most, like, lovable guys in hockey and teammates love him. Do I think that Brad True Living wants that, <laughs> you know, storyline, narrative of Phil Kessel? To, uh, no. I, I would be absolutely stunned if he's a Leaf again. But I, I love the guy. I think he's a, one of the better personalities in the game. I actually had a chance to talk to him um, on the ice after he, he won the cup uh, most recently. And he told me then that he wanted to come back. I think the most interesting thing is he's not going to make a big deal about losing the Ironman streak. Cause that's kind of where things started to unravel with, with Keith Yandel and, and some of his teams um, that they, they really went to bat for him. His teammates, they wanted to keep the streak alive. He wanted to keep the streak alive. He has it now. So I, I think that's the more interesting thing is he's humble enough to say, I'll come back and not have to play every game. Hold on. I, you, you talked to him and he said he would return to, he would be a Maple Leaf again? No, no. Just want to play again. Oh, okay. Just want to play again. No. Okay. Because no. that's no. another part of it. Like, was he so soured on his experience here that eh, maybe he, you know, if he has multiple suitors would choose not to come back to Toronto. Who knows? So behind the sky stuff. Again, August 31st, NHL discussions. Luke, you shouldn't be having them. You should be out on the golf course, so go do that. Okay, that's where I'm heading right now. Thanks, Ben. See ya. Goodbye. Okay, <laughs> Luke Fox, Sportsnet's own. Um, I love the idea. I mean, I was the guy who was talking about Josh Donaldson's potential return to the Blue Jays. I mean, no offense to Mason McCoy, but you could probably do worse. Um then Josh Donaldson over Mason McCoy is your 26th player on your roster. You could probably do worse. Goal seasons, and despite the waning minutes last season and playing time, certainly when it came to the postseason, still putting up a pretty good clip as far as goals per game, goals per 60 in Phil Kessel. You could do much better than that guy sitting in the press box on a, on a minimum salary with no contractual risk. And again, if, if we're judging this off Twitter polls, which maybe we shouldn't, but it's the only thing I have to use my scientific approach to understanding how people feel about things, people would be down with it. I mean, time does heal all wounds. And yes, he was a part of Salute Gate. I don't think he was the instigator there. That was clearly Dion Phaneuf. And for the uninitiated or for the people that have chosen to forget that moment, that was a low point in uh, Maple Leafs history when... Leafs were routinely getting booed off the ice. And I think they were, that was right around waffle, waffle times. Um, that instead of saluting the fans after a victory, Dion Phaneuf told everybody, we're not putting our sticks up. 
Uh, and yeah, that, that that wasn't great. It was not ideal. And then Brandon Shanahan arrived and did some evaluating and decided, hey, we got to do a little bit of a culture change. So he shook it up. But since then, all he's done is be one of the most clutch playoff performers, winning a couple of Stanley Cups in, in Pittsburgh as a key contributor, finished like just a, a hair away from Sidney Crosby in the Conn Smythe voting in 2016. I mean, you, you had a legitimate case that he was the best player on that Penguins team that did include a number of Hall of Famers and Phil himself is, I think, pretty clearly a Hall of Famer. I think the point that Luke made is the correct one, though. This is Brad True Living, and this is not a move made in a vacuum. This is a guy who's being judged, especially on his early moves. I think, by and large, people impressed at least uh, on the work signing Tyler Bertuzzi and, and Max Domi. Maybe to a lesser extent, what they've done on the back end. Um, but yeah, is this a guy that wants to indicate to people that he, he he wants to, you know, lean into nostalgia here? Not so sure. I just, the possibility is very interesting. For a team that, at times, had trouble scoring last year, I remember, this is not a team, despite the perception outside of the city of Toronto, not one that's like playing fire wagon hockey. It's a pretty good defensive group, or at least was last year. Um, and at times, especially in the postseason, have trouble finding the back of the net. Phil Kessel, all he's done is do that throughout the course of his career. All right, when we come back, Canada's quest to qualify for the 2024 Olympic Games in Paris by going deep in the FIBA World Cup. It resumes tomorrow against the expected Brazil, who is one of those teams from the Americas that Canada is competing with to finish top three at this event and clinch their spot in the Olympics. We'll talk to Alvin Williams, Sportsnet basketball analyst, former Raptors point guard next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sports. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. and you're rooting for is as successful as Team Canada has been through three games of uh, the opening round of the FIBA World Cup with dominating victories over France, Lebanon, and then uh, Latvia. And the Latvia game was not as easy as the final scoreline indicated. They were down 12 points in the first half. Great, great comeback initiated by Shea Gilchus-Alexander, who's like already very much on the map. Like He's getting MVP votes, so it's, it's not like really this is his coming out party. But in this tournament... Averaging 22 points, eight rebounds, five, uh, 5.7 assists on 64% true shooting. He leads uh, Team Canada in points, rebounds, and assists. He's, he's, he's quite good. Uh, our next guest would know that very well. He's watched all the games because he's been broadcasting them. Alvin Williams, Sportsnet basketball analyst, former Raptors point guard, joining me on the line right now. How's it going, Alvin? What's up, buddy? How are you? I'm good, man. Uh, long time no chat. How are you enjoying this tournament? Because it's been fun as hell. No, it's exciting. It's pretty much, you know, since I, I, I mean, I've watched international ball, but I really haven't been tied up in it. But the excitement is there. It reminds me so much of college, right? Shorter games, but it's the one and done 
environment. It's like every play is critical. Everything is, you know, highly intense. So it's really good. It makes it makes it's a different style of play. So it just, you know, brings that whole field to basketball again. Yeah, I mean, before we get into Team Canada, now that you bring it up and the different um, the different look of the of the FIBA game, is there anything, I guess, rule wise or style wise in 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 the FIBA game that you think uh, would work well in the NBA? Um, I'm not sure what it, I mean. I'm so used to the NBA, but I'm not I'm not sure what will work well. But you know, I think overall, it's just the attitude. It's mm-hmm. the it's the feel. You're playing for your country. You're playing for you know something more than a I shouldn't say a paycheck, but you're you're uh, you have more on the line to me emotionally. Every game, once again, is important, and you feel it. Even calling the games, you feel the energy, not even being there actually, but you feel it. You, see, you hear the crowd, you see every play they're moving, they're cutting, and you know the, the tension of detail is there. So it's always it's, it's, it's a it's a feel more so than actual rule change or just a different style of their playing. I think it's more about the individuals and their passion to play for a purpose. Um, so, yeah, Team Canada so far is fulfilling the promise of this golden generation. We have so many significant NBA players from this country. Alvin, take me back to, to the late 90s when you were playing for the Purple Dinosaur team and, and basketball was kind of a new sport. I mean, for many in this country, did you imagine that in a couple of decades – Canada again, like it's only three games in this tournament, and 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 it it hasn't resulted yet in an Olympic berth. But boy, the the talent is is there's so much of it in this country that it does feel like Canada's an emerging powerhouse on the international stage. Could you have envisioned that playing in Toronto in the late '90s? <laughs> not at all, man. And not, once again, not having or not really understanding what was here in Canada. But it, it's awesome to be able to call the games at this point, knowing is your point. When I first got here, I just remember driving to practice or leaving the game and I was, I was seeing kids or seeing people across the street with like skate bags. And it, it was nobody <laughs> walking down the street, dribbling a basketball. You wouldn't go past a playground and people were out there playing ball. You know, I, I, the first time I was really pretty much introduced to, to hockey at that, at that level. So, you know, it's, it's just amazing. And it's great to, to see the players. You know, I, I came from playing at Villanova. The only other player was Rowan Barrett. And I remember being in Canada, and of course, more Leo and guys like that. But you didn't hear the names. You know, Steve was someone I got a chance to play against in college. But I just didn't understand that, you know, basketball wasn't popular everywhere. It's, it's everything in the United States, but it wasn't like that here. But it, it's awesome to see how it's grown and how that, you know, how the players are giving back to the country and want to be a part of the country and want to be a part of something much more than them once again and something so special. So it's cool to be calling the games, but I couldn't see it, you know, if you would have asked me in 1999 or 1998 when I got here. Yeah, no, there's way more uh, basketball nets in front of houses now, I would say, in 2023 than there were <laughs> in, in 1997. Uh, so I mentioned SGA and what an insane start to this tournament he's had, but not unexpected. He's been... He was so good last year. And, uh, yeah, this this past NBA season was truly his coming out party. And I mentioned the NBA uh, MVP votes. Um, and you mentioned Steve Nash. And I, I had Grange on the other day. And I was talking about Shea Gilgis-Alexander maybe being the, 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 the first true superstar that's played for Team Canada since Steve Nash. It, it, it feels like it, Alvin. And there's, there's no Jamal Murray who's coming off a championship and looked 
pretty uh, pretty significant uh, part of that Nuggets team that that won it all last year. But Shagil just Alexander looks like well a top ten player in the world right now. No, he definitely does. He he's taking control of the games when it's needed. Um, he's learning, I think, on the job as well. I think it's very valuable for him to be in this situation. Um, just looking at his game, not playing playing one year in college and then, you know, in the NBA. His playing is getting better and better. And you look and he's not but he's not really winning yet. This scenario and this situation, he's he's part of he's winning and he's learning how to win and he's learning what it takes to be a leader and the the importance of every possession. So I think it's a great experience, but he's an awesome basketball player, what he can do on the court, how he can take over game, how he you can't speed him up, and he's a very mature player, and he's only going to get better and better. But I, I love this experience for him. I remember talking to DeMar DeRozan when he was part of the select team for uh, the USA, and he just told me just being in that environment around great other great players and people that was trying to win for one thing, once again, it made him a better player. It made his approach to the game much different once the NBA season started and as a regular as a player. So I think Shea can have that same type of experience and grab the same tools from, from this environment, playing around other great players and really winning. And he's part of something that's much bigger than him again. Yeah, I, I mentioned that the breakout season for him with the Thunder this past year is they, they end up with 40 wins uh, in a season they weren't expected to do nearly that well. And, and, and yeah, there's a bunch of Thunder players actually playing really well at, the, at this World Cup right now. And and there's obviously more eyeballs on NBA games than there is on on the World Cup, but not so much the the Thunder in particular. I, and I've seen a bunch of stuff written about SGA and this Canadian team in particular from American writers. And uh, Brian Windhorst is is one of the 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 larger like uh, national or or North American basketball writers is actually in uh, Jakarta right now and, and covering this team and you know, talking in glowing terms about the talent that exists in Canada. And, and we'll get to Jordy Fernandez in just a second because he wrote about him as well. But do you think this could put, like, this is part of, of putting Shea Gilgis-Alexander on the map and maybe part of, like, encouraging the next potential superstar to, to play in this thing? Heck, yeah. For, no, for sure. I think it, when you're already that good and that talented and the more exposure you get on different stages and then – once again, when we look down, when we look at it, when careers are over and we evaluate players and compare players, it always comes down to winning and, you know, the accolades and everything like that. So he get an opportunity to, to be on this big stage. Basketball, the NBA is a world game. You know, it's, it's been expanding across the world over the years. And this is just another part of it. You have a lot of people and very talented international players that are playing in the NBA as you mentioned, in this tournament as well. So he's right there in the mix. He's showing that he's one of the best players in the world. And this, in this tournament, he's definitely one of the best players. But all of these things can enhance and, and, and give him exposure. And once you do that as a kid, and I'm watching these things, and I'm watching the game, and I, it's just going to bring him more notoriety. That's going to bring me as a kid more, be more eager to try to get or be the next SGA. So this is good across the board. And one, another note to, to to get Canada even more exposure and more growth in the world of basketball. Um, I, I think Jordy Fernandez is going to get an NBA head coaching gig. Uh, maybe not out of this thing because he was already on the radar as far as a potential gig this, this past hiring cycle. In fact, the Raptors interviewed him 
for the open uh, vacancy. But if if Canada keeps looking this way, it's it's hard not to ignore uh, or hard to ignore what Jordy Fernandez has done in such a, a brief period of time. What what have you seen from him? I I loved the other day, Alvin, the the mic'd up session where they're. You know, he's talking about, you guys think you're a first-place team and tearing a strip off off this Canadian squad. Like, what have you seen in the early returns out of Jordy Fernandez? Um, it's, it, it, I see a lot. Well, I mean, I, I see a, a talented team, but, you know, he just took the team over. And he's placed in a very difficult position that could be a very difficult position from getting the team to buy in to getting the guys to play together and all those things. And they're still growing. I like I like how he is. He is passionate, but you know we we can see those tidbits and hear those things. But the things that we can't hear, you know, those shoot arounds and in the locker room. If you notice, every time this team comes out in the second half, they turn it on. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's something that's something where he's getting the team and getting the guys to understand the importance of the second half, whether it's through adjustments, whether it's through psychologically being being more being ready, all of these things. So those adjustments. Whatever they are, whatever those speeches, that coming out in that second half is very tough. And a lot of times you see a team, they will come out and they'll be a little lax in that third quarter. You know, they just can't get warmed up or they take the game and they let the game come to it. But this Canada team in that second half, they they really, really turn it on. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is, that, that connection and, and that relationship that he has with the players is really showing. Um from that second half, but I like him. I like, I like his composure on the court. I like how he's in the huddle. I like how he allows other coaches to speak to the players. So, so he has a lot, he has a great temperament about him and a great approach without knowing much about Jordy. I do, I do appreciate his style and his approach to the team. All right. So you mentioned the the first half, like like this, the slow starts for, for this Canadian team, but I mean, they did somehow, and I don't know how, because I watched that whole first half end up with a halftime lead against Latvia uh, with a late little run there and they hit, and then yeah, RJ Barrett on the run right at the buzzer, but they felt thoroughly outplayed in that first half before really turning it on in that third quarter. Uh, also the, uh, Free throw shooting was pretty abysmal for for Team Canada in that game. They've shot the three generally well, and I think a lot of people pointed to that as a potential weakness for this uh, Canadian team. Like, if we were going to poke holes in this team and, like, the formula for beating Team Canada, what what do you think it it could be? Like, what are these these teams that are a little bit superior than than Latvia and, I guess, a a France team that underperformed Spain and Brazil? Like, what are they looking at as far as taking advantage uh, or, or a weakness for this Team Canada? You know, the the weakness, I, I think, when you compare it to other teams is the lack of experience. And these guys are playing together. I think sometimes they will get into a mix where guys are going individual playing basketball, individual playing, whether, you know, sometimes SGA or it's Rowan, ba- I'm Rowan, RJ. And, you know, guys are just going against a tough defense. Defensively, you can play zones. You can have illegal. There's no illegal defense. So, as an NBA player with a lot of talent, you have to figure out how can you be effective and how can you make sure you keep the offense with a nice flow. So the players sometimes they can't get in their own heads and their own games. So I think that that was a weakness, but I think the players are learning more and more. And then defensively, how to stay engaged on every play. There's a lot of um, double action, multiple action, where guys are setting screens, popping off the screens, coming off a dribble, hand and rolls, diving. And as a defensive player, you have to really keep your head on a swivel. You have to be engaged. You have to communicate. 
And if you're not used to playing guys like that, that move around and have the ability to shoot the ball, it's going to be really tough. As you see against Latvia, that's what happened early on. Players just weren't engaged. They weren't playing excited. They weren't playing great defense, and they weren't playing disciplined defense with that type of effort that they needed from the beginning. And you saw Latvia get out to the 12-point lead. So I think just the understanding of the FIBA style of ball is going to be the weakness. But the talent, I think, is unmatched. And the ability to play at a high level for 40 minutes, hopefully for, for Canada, is unmatched. But their talent is taking over as long as, as long as they continue to learn the style and don't take it for granted. Yeah, uh, I, I would hope they, they don't take anything for granted, especially considering some of the disappointments that the national team has put forth over the last couple of years. Uh, because as good as Canada looks right now, I, there's a lot of Canadian basketball fans that are still nervous, right? Like they, they, they need to get the job done before anybody can can breathe a, a sigh of relief, but it, it may be coming this weekend. Again, uh, tomorrow morning against Brazil and then Sunday against Spain. I do want to talk a little Raptors with you, Alvin, because this Pascal Siakam thing hasn't resolved itself. He's still without an, an extension, and then we've, we've heard plenty of, of trade rumors surrounding him as he heads into the final year of his deal, and, you know, his, his camp has kind of leaked that he won't be signing an extension with anybody that tries to trade for him, which uh, I guess is an effort to to tamp down the the market for for trading for him um you, you've seen the majority of his career does this guy seem like somebody who might let that type of off court stuff impact his on court play <laughs> man you never know you, you you never know he doesn't seem like it and i've never seen him in this position where his back his back isn't to the wall but you know there's a lot of things swirling around him and it's not just necessarily his game. It's it's the other. It's the business side. It's the ugly side of sports. So you never know how it will impact a player when they come in. I'm, I'm sure he's working out. I'm sure he's going to be in shape. And and the the thing is, it can impact the team. And that that's the unfortunate thing because you have such a great player, and you have one probably the 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 most experienced player on the team. And if he's not engaged, and if he's not you know, with the team, it's going to, it can take the team. It can take the, the new coach in a, in a tough direction. So hopefully, hopefully they can get things taken care of, but I don't see, as long as he doesn't allow it, but I don't see someone like Pascal Siakam from what I've seen in the past, him to, to be a player that, that would allow him to, you know, not play and not be ready at the level when it's time to start in October. Is he the type of guy that the Raptors should be looking at locking up to a max contract? Oh man, you put me in a seat where I can get paid big money. I don't know. Uh, I mean, to me, he he's getting a lot of flack because I guess I, I hear a lot that he's not the guy, he's not the closing guy. To me, he's still at that at this phase of his career. It's he's somebody that to me is very talented. I'm not going to find five other players at his position better than him. I don't see him not growing anymore. I feel like he has a lot of, a lot of room to improve and being that guy, you have to learn how to be that guy. I, I still feel two or three years at that, at that place. You're not, it's not necessarily going to be that guy. So I, I feel like he can still grow into being what the Raptors need him to be. So me, I would look deeply into locking him up because I feel like he, I'm not going to find many other players much better than the Pascal Siakam, but also it's not just about that. It's about the chemistry of the team. 
It's about what what the other options are out there. Is it a package deal? Is it anything like that that I can make my team better? Because ultimately, that the goal as a team, as a as a president, as upper management, you your responsibility is to do what best for the team, and you have to explore all options. But Pascal has put himself in a situation where you have to explore that, and you just can't get rid of him for anything. Yeah, it's a business. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you when you hear about uh, trade situations or potential trade situations like this, it, it does make you think, or at least makes me think differently about sometimes. And maybe not in the case of James Harden, who's asked out of a, a million different places. But yeah, it makes you sympathize, I think, a little bit for those players who, who ask out, who feel like, yeah, they have no control, or at least that the team has more control than them and trying to wrestle it back. Uh, we'll see how it, uh, how it turns out. Um, Alvin, great job on the, on the calls of these games, and I uh, really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you. Likewise. See you, man. All right, there's Alvin Williams, Sportsnet basketball analyst, former Raptors point guard, calling uh, the Team Canada games uh, with Dan Schulman um, from Toronto as the broadcast resumed tomorrow at 9 o'clock, a half-hour pregame show, with a 9.30 tip-off, Canada against Brazil. And again, we've gotten to the bottom of the format of this thing after a couple of guests. So Canada takes its 3-0 record and its plus 1 million point differential into the second round where they will play two more games. It'll be like a five-game record between them, Latvia, Brazil, and Spain. And the top two teams record-wise, and I guess it could come down to point differential or whatever, certain tiebreakers get through to the quarterfinal stage. So Canada's 3-0, Spain's 3-0, Brazil's 2-1, Latvia's 2-1. Canada will play Brazil and then Spain. You win two games, you're guaranteed through to the quarterfinals. You win one of the two, a little bit up in the air, but uh, a possibility you get through to the second round. That's why that Latvia victory was, uh, was so important. All right. Blue Jays with a day off today. I guess well-deserved. I mean, like, deserved. Can we just leave it at deserved? Does it have to be well-deserved? It's deserved. They took two out of three, which the bare minimum, even against a Nationals team that has a, what, they're like nine games over 500 since the All-Star break. I get it. They're still the Washington freaking Nationals, okay? Guys started last game of the series, an ERA approaching six, and has been brutal last couple of years. Um, Blue Jays took two out of three, so good for them. And in fact, they've cut into the wild card lead now. It's only two and a half games. They trail the Texas Rangers. And you look at the upcoming schedule for both the Blue Jays and the Rangers, and it could be very, very interesting. Coming up next, the Rangers have the Minnesota Twins, who at the moment lead the American League Central. They, they play tomorrow. There's only four games in, in baseball tonight, and uh, the Rangers don't play. So it's... The Rangers against the Twins. The Rangers have played brutally. They've been horrific in in the past couple of weeks. The nine-game losing streak, they've now lost, what, 10 of their last 12 games? Uh, and the Twins are, you know, they're nicely perched atop the American League Central until today's news came down. So you may have heard yesterday, and in fact, Dan and Buck were talking about it on the broadcast, that the Angels, after acquiring everybody being the, the biggest buyer at the trade deadline as they tried to appease Shohei Otani and then immediately lost seven straight, they put everybody on waivers. And why this feels weird to you and to me as well is that, okay, we've lived in this post 
revocable waivers world only since 2020. And 2020 was the pandemic. You may have recalled that as well. And last year was a bit of a weird season, uh, considering it was condensed. And, you know, we've had some weird seasons. And never has this been used in this fashion before where players are just put on waivers, which used to be revocable waivers, right? And guys would, you know, be... I would come onto the radio and I would say, hey, you may see this report. It means nothing because everybody's put on waivers. The best players in the world are put on waivers because why not? Um, because you can you can pull them back if they're, in fact, claimed or let them go. In the case of, like, an Alex Rios, and his contract was swallowed up by the White Sox. So that's gone because there's only one trade deadline now. But now there is a thing called waivers where you can just put players out there. Same deal. Not revocable, though. The Angels put everybody on waivers, seemingly. And a bunch of them were picked up. None by the Blue Jays. There was a potential fit there. A couple of different outfielders. The state of Ohio was very busy, by which I mean the Guardians, despite being five games back of the lead in the Central, acquired a bunch of dudes. The Reds acquired a bunch of dudes. Randall Gritchick was acquired by nobody. So he's going to stay on the Angels um, for the stretch run, it seems. All right, when we come back, though, we'll talk to Bob Elliott, Jack Graney, and JG's Taylor Spink Award winning baseball writer about that uh, and all things Blue Jays as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. In-depth Blue Jays coverage with an analytical twist. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And two of them have happened in the last week. One was on Sunday in in which the, the Blue Jays squandered three opportunities to uh, cash a runner from second base with none out and couldn't do it, end up losing the rubber match to the Cleveland Guardians. And then in the middle game of that uh, series against the Washington Nationals, yeah, did Alejandro Kirk thrown out trying to score from third base when a pinch runner could have easily applied in the eighth inning. Either way, they take the rubber match and they get out of town with a, a split of the last six games, day off today, and then they're in Colorado to play a, a really horrible Rockies team tomorrow, but in a place in Coors Field that is very different than every other ballpark in Major League Baseball, kind of like playing on the moon. Last time the Blue Jays were there was 2019. They were swept in a three-game series. Let's talk to uh, Bob Elliott. Jack Graney and J.G. Taylor Spink award-winning baseball writer, uh, writer for the Canadian Baseball Network now. Uh, Bob, how's it going? Thanks for doing this. How are you, Benjamin? I'm doing very, very well. So there's so much season still left. Um, I know that it, it feels like we played a million games because we have, but there, there is, yeah, still uh, factually more than a, a month left of the season. But if, in fact, the, this Blue Jays team finishes on the outside of the playoff picture looking in, um, Bob, to have missed the playoffs this year and have zero playoff wins with Vlad and Bo in year five, um, what what level of a disaster would that be for this franchise? I think that would be, uh, what did I got on MLB Network? I think it's uh, Concern, Panic, or Doom or <laughs> something like that. I think that would be uh, the worst of the three. I mean, uh, you know, they used to talk about windows with Batista and then Carnacion and how they and all that stuff. I mean, uh, 
this is this is not a big window that they have left. I think uh, I think you probably see them uh, shake up the boat a little bit if uh, if they finish uh, two games out of the wild card or or if they go winless. Yeah, that would uh, that would not be good. Um, again, there's there's plenty of time left, and in fact, they control their own destiny with the four games upcoming uh, against the Rangers. It's a weird season, though, Bob, because. There's so much about this team that is good and has been good all season long. I mean, most of, most of it resides uh, on the pitching side of things where they have one of the the best ERAs overall in, in franchise history. And even the offense, I mean, you look at not just the names on paper, but like the overall, you know, batting average and on-base percentage and OPS, like that stuff doesn't look that far off. It's, it's not one of the worst teams in Major League Base. It's like it all comes down to hitting with runners in scoring position in these clutch moments, which we – Again, saw in, in a couple opportunities against the Nationals and, and Guardians recently. Can can you remember a season quite like this? Or, or maybe am I stuck in the moment feeling that this is a, a bizarre season? Are they all kind of bizarre in their own way? Uh, well, this is similar. I uh, I can think of two or three years where like the manager would say, uh, once Lucido, and I remember another year was Gibbons, but I don't know the year, but uh, it would be, we didn't even need a base hit there. All we needed was a ground ball or a fly right. ball, and, and then we score, you know, and we pop it up or we strike out, you know, like uh, really lamenting the fact that, you know, like they've had one for 11 uh, men in scoring positions, uh, position chances before. The one I remember, though, I think it was 1994, and Dave Stewart says they were pitching very well after not pitching well to start the season, I think. And he said, I just hope this doesn't reach the stage where the pitchers really dislike the hitters. I said, what do you mean? And he said, I've been on, I've been on teams like that before. Like we're doing our job. Why can't you guys do your job? And then it gets nasty. And I checked back with him about a week later and he said, uh, not that they were playing any, any better, but he said it, it hadn't gotten any worse. Like the, the feelings between pitchers and hitters. Yeah, you wonder. I mean, and there's been, I mean, nothing too direct, but you know, Kevin Gossman at, at times this season has is, is seemed like a little perturbed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, don't you get that sense, Bob? Uh, yes, but uh, it wouldn't be, uh, how would I say, uh, like calling out guys by name or uh, like, mm. I mean, Dave Stewart, uh, he used to call it Conseco by name uh, in the paper. He was... Uh, that was when he was with Oakland, but uh, it was uh, it was uh, stressful times. I haven't seen that as, as stressful here yet. The one thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if you guys have already mentioned it, was uh, Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Kirk thing. Oh, man. I know what he's saying. He said, I'm saving him for... Uh, I'm saving him for the. 11th. I didn't want to take his his bat out of the inning, out of the lineup. Saving him, right? Okay. Well, but what happens? What happens if Washington scores six in the top of the ninth? You know, like. But I will say, uh, Sunday against Cleveland, he, he pinch ran Kiermaier for Davis or Babe Ruth or whoever his name is. This yeah, week. same the thing. The guy with the mustache. Yep. So, and then in the 11th, people were complaining that Kiermaier was up instead of Davis. So, I mean, I think you take, I think you take the runs when you can. And, and that AAA guy with 18 stolen bases, McCoy, 
he's a better shot. He probably scores standing uh, compared to Kirk but, on that play. But the other the other one in that inning was in the fifth inning. All right, mm-hmm. like I don't know. It doesn't matter if it's John Olerud, Willie Upshaw, John Mayberry, Carlos Delgado. You name them. Okay, so it's 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 uh, two out. Uh, Washington's got two out. There's a man on a man on first base. It's a three and two count. And uh, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, Manessas. Mm-hmm. He singles right. Guerrero's holding the guy on. Like you don't hold people on with with the full count. Mm-hmm. The guy's running. Okay. There's no there's no pickoff attempt. So none of those guys I mentioned they ever would ever hold a guy on. If he's back playing normal. You give up, you give up the the base, and you you cover more ground. I mean, it would have been the third out. So Joyman has a singles. Now it's now he got two runners aboard, and then Ruiz hits a three run homer uh, for Arios, and they're down five one. So I mean, it's it, like something like that. I don't I don't know if they told him to hold him on, or if that's new analytics, or but it's very uncommon to see uh, to see holding a guy on on a full count with two out. A hundred percent. And I'm glad you brought up uh, all those, those instances recently. I, I was off the air yesterday, naturally with the, the afternoon game and people could only consume my opinion through the means of Twitter, which it's not the same as, as getting to, to talk through it. But yeah, that was mind boggling um, to, to, to see the, the, the Kirk thing. And then the explanation where, yeah, I guess you're, you're thinking about extra innings and the fact that Brandon Belt's not available off the bench to pinch hit for Mason uh, McCoy in the 11th inning. It factors into your decision-making as to whether you, you give yourself the best chance to score run uh, to cut the lead to one. And the, it's, it's mind-boggling. And then, yeah, okay, if it's, if it's not John Schneider's call, whether uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is holding the runner at first base, it should be, and he should be aware of that. I, I, and he seems like... And he, he's a very good orator, and I and I got a lot of time yep. for him. Apparently, a, a good dude, and and yeah, I mean, could could his players put him in a in a situation where we weren't parsing every single moment of these games late in the season? Of course, of course, of course, it's the players number one. But it, it's hard not to look at some of the recent decision making, Bob, and and really start to question the manager. Well, like it, it'd be like uh, tonight or tomorrow night, like not using somebody. Uh, a reliever to save him for uh, the fourth game of the series or whatever. Like it might rain, you know, you don't know you win when you, you win the games you can win. Like it might be the next game. You might give up uh, your starter might give up six. Like you don't, I mean, you got a guy in third with only one out. You want to score that guy. And the, the, I forget who the hitter was, but he got, was it Kiermaier? He got the ball deep enough. I yeah. Think. No, it was Varsho. Varsho hit one Varsho, to, to yeah. center field. So he gets hung with an all for one because the manager doesn't. Uh, he, he saves McCoy for the doesn't want to use him in the eleventh. Well, there wasn't an eleventh, you know. Oh, yeah, it's it's tough. Um, I mean, where in your in your experience covering baseball teams, and I mean, this is just a team that fired a manager, right? Like uh, a year ago, they 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 yeah. asked they asked Charlie Montoyo, and this is their handpicked guy, although. It took a while to to extend John Schneider, and you you do wonder if they had a dalliance there with with Terry Francona. But uh, eventually, they locked him up long term. I mean, can you can you turn around and and look elsewhere for a manager? It, it, well, especially if you're the same GM, and maybe that's another question. But I, it it must be said like that that is very much on my my list of questions at the end of this season. If in fact the Blue Jays miss the playoffs, is 
how do they get better at these in-game decision-making? Well, uh, first, on Matoya, I thought Matoya was a great hire. I thought he had, like, nine years at AAA, 13 years managing. I thought that's better than Rocco Baldelli or better than Aaron Boone that never managed the game in his life. I thought that was a good choice. Turned out I was wrong. But I don't think I'll have any problem playing on a manager if they make the change. They'll just go to number 23, uh, Mattingly, you know. Yeah, and, and that was a lot of people's speculation when, when Don Mattingly uh, was hired, former manager of the year in Major League yeah. Baseball. I mean, do, and to the other part where, you know, I, I think there would be rightly some questions asked of the general manager who's not making these decisions on his own, but he's responsible. No. But he does feel uh, joined at the hip with Mark Shapiro, who's not going anywhere, right? And I, I, I think he's done a remarkable job as far as renovating Rogers Center. I've been down there a bunch, and it's a, it's a fun place, and the attendance is way up this year. And I think the in-game experience is, is much, much better. And while he's part of the baseball operations department, I, I think he's, he's really focused on, on the business side of things, which I think is, has been good. Like, can you separate the two? Do you think there's a world in which Mark Shapiro fires Ross Atkins? Um, well, he was his uh, only choice uh, after, or the choice, I guess, after what were they at a four-man, uh, their committee, they interviewed four people, including Atkins, and they hired uh, Atkins. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, I, there's a relationship there going back, even though he's passed over a couple of times to be GM in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, uh, like you said earlier about Shapiro and what he's done on the business side, he gets uh, he gets high marks for uh, – and that, that keeps the people at the campus happy, you know. Is this, is this a, a lot of um... – you know, we're we're, um, we're we're judging the results and not the process, which we're allowed to do. <laughs> but uh, that, uh, like, where was the the mistake made with this team? Again, I mean, they could turn it all around and they could make the playoffs and they could win a World Series and this this conversation becomes moot. But in the construction of this baseball team, was there not enough attention paid to the offense? Because I'll be honest, I I thought it was certainly good enough offensively going into this season. What? Like, looking back now, was there a, a big mistake made in the construction of this baseball team? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, they, they gave, we all knew they gave up a lot of offense and to Oscar and, and Guriel, to, but they wanted to improve the defense, and they have. I think maybe Varsho, well, he has, has not hit as well as they expected. But uh, um, they're, they're all right catching. I mean, Kirk's been a drop-off yeah. uh, offensively. But Jansen's been fine, uh, and and Arizona didn't want Kirk. They didn't want uh, Jansen because they make too much money. They wanted the guy making making the minimum, you know, Moreno. But uh, they they needed a they needed maybe one more bat, you know, because they're kind of lopsided the one way. But uh, uh, I think I think it's tough to complain about the pitching staff, uh, Hicks. Hicks has got a lot of oomph on the ball. Uh, guys tell me it's straight as heck because uh, uh, I remember I remember Billy Koch when he came up and he was the first guy we'd ever seen throw a hundred. Yeah, and I don't know after he threw five straight a hundreds and the fifth pitch went into the second deck. <laughs> and I remember asking, I don't know who it was. Uh, Cito or I don't know if it's Fergosi, but I said, no, it was Mel Queen, the pitch coach. I said, how is it physically possible for somebody to hit a 100-mile-an-hour pitch? We, I've never seen that. He says, 
He says, "You, it's just like they're, he doesn't have a second pitch. And if they're, they're just like coming out of a batting machine at an indoor facility. You throw enough of them, the guy's going to turn it around. And, and Koch eventually got a, got a second pitch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Jordan Hicks has, I guess, uh, you know, the sweeper. But if he's not throwing that for strikes, yeah, guys can wait on 103. It's working yeah. so far, though. Um, you, you mentioned Babe Ruth, uh, a.k.a. David Schneider or Babe Schneider, I guess, as Brandon Belt likes to call him. Um, and after, I guess, a little bit of a lull after after the, the series at Fenway Park, he's reemerged as as the Blue Jays' most important hitter, especially now that Bo Bichette is, is down. He's a 28th-round pick. He's uh, sub six feet tall. He, he, he doesn't look like he's, he's going to be an MVP candidate uh, if you're just to, to see him on the street. But, and I don't expect him to keep up like a 1,400 OPS or anything. But I must say, Bob, in watching the process, it, it, it does match the results, and it, and it never seems to waver. How sold are you on, on what we've seen out of David Schneider? Well, I'm, uh, I don't think he'll be the starting second baseman, left fielder, third baseman, or whatever next year. But I will tell you, and you already know this, the fans love him. I mean, they love, they love John McDonald. John McDonald could have retired here and ran for mayor and That's true. won for one on a walk. <laughs> Maybe been prime minister, but uh, uh, we this town. I don't know. I don't. When I covered the Expos, I didn't think it was the same. But this town likes little guys, and they like guys that look like they're giving their all, as opposed to some guy like. Well, Judge would be popular here, but some big guy, you know, like uh, some big, like maybe. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a big call, like Sean Green, maybe you know, mm. like. Sean Green or, or David Snyder, most people are going to cheer for in the seats, in the cheap seats, are going to cheer for uh, for Babe Snyder. That's, that's why true. I have no idea. <laughs> Sean Green's a much better player, <laughs> obviously. Not not than this version uh, that we've seen of David Snyder. This is the best player that ever lived, Bob. What are you talking about? <laughs> so far. Yeah, yeah. it's early. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, can you remember uh, as somebody with with as as little a pedigree as David Schneider again, 28th round pick, had to, to yeah, make they, his, they, yeah. they don't even have that round anymore. Um well, Piazza was uh yeah, his last second, round pick, but uh, Chris Woodward I think was a 54th rounder and he uh, he was a shortstop for oh. all, a couple of months at a time, basically a backup. Uh then he went on to manage the Rangers. Um, there's another guy, uh, uh, Bertie. I think John Bertie was the late. Pick. Right. I'd have to look him up. He didn't. He didn't do that much here, except I remember he saw his picture on the Skydome uh, on the jumbotron, and uh, he ducked out of the picture. And Gibbons happened to notice it during a pitching change, and Gibbons grabbed him and brought him in, you know, and embarrassed the kid. But he's doing well with the Marlins, yeah. Yeah, he's done really well, stealing bases, yeah. and and yeah, uh, he's just being an overall productive player. Uh, where are you on on the state of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s career? Because this is a step back from even a, a year ago, which was well above average, and even this year, it's an above average offensive player, but playing a position in first base where the offensive bar is is obviously much higher. And we got two more years of team control uh, going into next season. Where are you on on the state of? what you expect Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to be and, and what he's been? Well, I expected more than what he's delivered, uh, as I think most people have. Now, what do you do? Like, 
I think uh, do you give do you give him a, a whack of money and tie him up long term? I don't know. Right now, I would have to say uh, I don't know. I think the shortstop, yes. I mean, as long as he's not, uh, he's been he's been banged up twice in the side of a week or whatever. But hopefully, that's minor. He's he's a heck of a player, uh, a heck of a hitter. He maybe plays out of control sometimes at shortstop defensively, but. Uh, He's a heck of a hitter, I, you know, and so is Merrifield. It's too bad they didn't get him five years ago. He would, uh, he could, he could play anywhere. But Glad Guerrero, I don't know. He guys tell me that he's uh, that he's late on everything. You know, yeah. Now, I'm not smart enough. I don't know anything about hitting, but they always have that saying: the ball goes where your nose goes, and he pops up an awful lot. You know, so that means he's. He's getting getting to the ball late, I think. Yeah, and uh, and uh, um, defensively, I, I think he strides too early. And uh, like you remember that night in New York where he lost his balance, mm-hmm. and quite accidentally, uh, Hicks, Aaron Hicks, stepped on him because he he barehand wound up in foul ground. Like you have to treat. The foul line as a first base, and you have to treat it like train tracks or electric fence at outside a prison. You know, there's no way you want to go over there, or else you're going to get hit. Like he's lucky, all the all the bones in the back of his hand. I think he, I think he came back and hit a homer two that night. But uh, he's, you know, Aaron Hicks is a big man standing on a just he, and he's doing it completely by accident. He's just trying to beat out a hit. Mm-hmm. And he steps steps on the back of his hand, uh, but he uh, what I meant by strides t- too early. So now he that's fine if the guy throws it right there in that little box. But if it's to the left or to the right a little bit, he he's he's uh, he. I think he he dropped one last night that I thought he should oh, have. That was going to be an incredible play, but Mason McCoy, who I, I don't think many people are expecting too much out of, he gets his first defensive chance at shortstop but like on the verge of making an incredible play just needed to be picked by by vlad which is not an easy play but yeah poor mason yeah. mccoy yeah I, that was the one where he tapped his chest and said girl chap, tapped his chest and said my foul my yeah. fault my bad yeah i think yeah yeah that was that was rough yeah. um yeah i i think just about everybody agrees with you as far as like if you were going to bank on one of he or Bo bichette that you'd be banking on Bo Bichette, who's been remarkably consistent throughout the course of his entire career, even going back to last year where I, I, I'm shocked at the way he was able to salvage the overall numbers with his his late surge. He's been un, unbelievably consistent, um, and he is factually locked up to uh, a predictable number. The The Blue Jays have have gone out and evaluated him as the, as the guy that they wanted to sign a long-term extension, multi-year extension, uh, with, although, I mean, Vlad's going to get paid more in arbitration because he's, he's already started at a, at a higher number. Do you think, Bob, and, and your understanding of, of the way the baseball player mentality works and those guys being so intrinsically connected as far as uh, arriving the same year and playing all throughout the minor leagues together, that you can sign one beyond their arbitration eligibility years, like into free agency, you could sign one but not the other and keep them on the same team? Um, I think you could, I think you can, uh, I, as they all say in, uh, money talks, you know, what's that commercial in New York, uh, money talks, nobody walks or something. Uh, they, they, uh, they can keep them happy. Rogers got enough money to keep them happy. They can keep them both if they want. They'll, they'll only keep one if they want, you know? 
Yeah. Uh, we'll see. I, I know the one I'd be banking on. Uh, Bob, yeah. uh, very much uh, appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. A pleasure as always. See you, Bob. There's uh, Bob Elliott, one of the greats, Canadian Baseball Hall of Famer, writing now for the Canadian Baseball Network. Yeah, there's no question. It's like, it seems like a waste to even ask the question right now. Who would you rather have, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or uh, Bo Bichette? Clearly, Bo Bichette and the guy that you are relying on to produce at the same level year after year after year after year. It's one guy, and it's not the other. All right, so here's uh, the situation with the Blue Jays. Two and a half games back of a playoff spot in the American League, which I guess is the goal now. We went from winning the World Series to just making the playoffs. I imagine even if the Blue Jays do sneak into the playoffs this season and then once again bow out rather quickly in the wild card round like they did a season ago. I mean, it wasn't quietly because that game two against the Mariners was insane. But yeah, they didn't win a game. Went out in two straight despite having the incredible advantage of having all three potential wild card games at home. I mean, they lost the first two. And I guess that was the first indication we had that Alec Manoa was perhaps going to regress because he was brutal. In, uh, in game one, uh, and the Blue Jays had a big lead in game two, and then, you know what, maybe that should have been our first indication that the, John Schneider wasn't up to the job. Because, again, it's always the players, first and foremost, that are responsible, but the manager does have some impact, and there's a reason why, you know, managers aren't just handed lifetime appointments because some guys are better than others, and in the sample that we have of John Schneider, it's hard not to... Come away with the opinion that the Blue Jays are not maximizing their potential advantage in that area of Major League Baseball. All right, so the Blue Jays, two and a half games back of, again, playoff spot, despite being World Series contenders preseason, World Series favorites maybe, going into the season, at least according to some. They got the Rockies coming up for three games, which is, again, very winnable. This Rockies team's brutal, brutal, brutal. Horrible, horrible, horrible. But that is such a strange place to play. And I know, listen, I don't watch a lot of Rockies games. Why would I? Recently, at least. But I do recall that series in 2019, and it's it's not just that balls end up leaving the ballpark more often at that high altitude. It's like breaking balls don't break as much. There's just more hits in that ballpark than there are in every other. So weird stuff happens. But that's a series, and you can never say a team is supposed to sweep another team. But... At this point in the season, considering the opposition, yeah, you got to sweep that series. And then Blue Jays go to Oakland where there's like, yeah, another almost got to sweep series against the A's. And then they come back home to play the Royals, who they took three to four from in that second series of the season. Remember when, like, the season was teetering? They won game one of 162 and then lost the next two to the Royals or uh, to the Cardinals and then went into Kansas City and lost game one. It was like, oh, sky's falling already. And then, of course... Went on uh, a nice little run in April. Remember April? The good times that existed in April? Anyways, so you got Kansas City who stinks. And then the big series against the Rangers. Here's what the Rangers have. Mentioned the Twins in a series starting tomorrow. These are all three gamers, by the way. And the Rangers, again, two and a half games up on the Blue Jays for that second wild card. It seems like the most gettable team right now, despite the fact that they have an insane run differential. That apparently doesn't matter because they stink right now. Twins who lead the American League Central, and you can laugh at that, and you should. Okay, but they're above 500, which is more than any of the Blue Jays' next three opponents can say. And then you got the defending champion Houston Astros for three, and then they also have the A's 
before they come to Toronto for this four-game series. All right, so you can talk to me about how disappointing this team has been, which it has. I just said it. World Series contender, if not favorite, going into the season. Here they are, two and a half games out of a playoff spot. September is tomorrow. You can talk about how difficult it is to watch this team offensively at times, not just because of their inability to hit with runners in scoring position, but because of, like, the fundamentals that apparently are absent from every single hitter on this baseball team. At least they are when they put on a Blue Jays uniform for whatever reason. That the There's just no ability to lay down a bunt, even when you're, like, a 26-man type player. Um... There's no ability to score a runner from third base with fewer than two outs. You can talk about this offense being frustrating, which it is. Like, I would grant you those things. Like, because I watch the team too. Those are true. Both of those things. This is the fun part of baseball, though. Because all that stuff, like, it's all true. And if you're, and I maybe this is, I'm doing too much of, like, the gauging the human race through Twitter thing right now. But if you're one of those people that's replying to every little stat or every little observation I have about the the baseball game and not a lot of it's been positive recently, and you're like, that's why I'm never watching the Jays ever again. Or this season, I'm turning the TV off. Okay, I guess. Like, I, I don't understand why you watch sports, though, because that this is the nature of not just sports in general, but this sport in particular. It will break your damn heart daily, all the time. But eventually, and I know it doesn't feel like it because it's been going on for so long with this team and their inability to hit with runners in scoring position, generally there is a payoff. And some franchises had to wait 80, 100 years in the case of the Red Sox and the Cubs to, to see that payoff. But that's part of it. It truly is. And very few seasons are front runner from day one all the way through game 162, and then you sweep all the way to a World Series title, that's not the way any team generally wins a World Series unless, like, I don't know, I'm too difficult for last year's Astros team. But, yeah, this is, this is part of it. And do I discount the possibility of the Blue Jays reversing all those numbers that seemed like they were on the verge of reversing multiple times this season, getting into the playoffs, winning a postseason round against, again, if you're the last wildcard team, you get the winner of the American League Central and I'm sorry, like, oh, three games on the road in Minnesota does not seem all that daunting. And then you go on to, to win a World Series. Yeah, you, you'll say it was all worth it. Now, that being said, if this continues and the Blue Jays continue to lose and they look this way and they finished outside of the playoffs looking in and everybody's head is in the guillotine at the end of the season, eh, not so much. But that's why we watch, because of the uncertainty. All right, when we come back, a lot of uncertainty surrounding the Canadian men's national soccer program. They just recently lost their head coach. But Toronto FC just gained a, a head coach with pretty good pedigree. John Herdman joins me next. Uh, next head coach of Toronto FC as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. The smartest takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team Canada joins the biggest club 
in this country, uh, taking over as the next head coach of Toronto FC. He joins us on the line right now. And uh, John, thanks so much for doing this. How did the, this come together? Did you initiate contact? How'd that work? No, I think, you know, since 2022, we qualified for the World Cup and you know, I changed my agency to 1010, an English firm who had a mission to to keep pushing us to that next level. And there's been a lot of options over the last uh, year and a half. And, you know, I think when this one was pushed over the table, uh, it was too good too good to turn down this is this is the bullseye for me in terms of the profile so you know when I was at the Gold Cup my my agent waited until I got back and said he'd reached out to TFC um, and that was it there was a phone call with with Bill and Jason and and then the connections with you know the members of MLSC just to go through to see what they really needed and whether you know, my profile would fit the uh, the opportunity here. And again, for me, it's a bullseye. You get to stay in Canada. You get to play your matches at BMO Field in front of those fans, which have got nothing but great memories. But to build something, to be part of a, of a rebuild, to hopefully those glory days that I, I remembered watching with Javinko, etc. So, you know, that's my plan. And, you know, that's what I'm really hoping and excited to be part of. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of Reds fans are very excited about that as well, John. I mean, you mentioned switching agencies. You mentioned your plan and, and the potential and the offers that were uh, presented to you. I, I wonder how, how long does your plan extend? Like, do, do you have every step of your career mapped out? How, how does that work? Because there's been many people speculating about where you ultimately want to end up. How, how much of that is already predetermined by you? Yeah, I've been on these sort of five, six-year cycles. Uh, I think that's that's been where all of a sudden you, you get those feelings in your gut that it, it's time to move. I mean, I think club is a little bit different international. I think my time in New Zealand was sort of six years with the women's team, and then seven, I think, with the Canadian six with the Canadian women's team, five with the men's. But I, I don't know how long you stay in those club settings. Um, you know, in MLS, uh, there are some sort of legacy dynasty coaches. I mean, that would be amazing. Um, but I'm here to, to, to do what what I think the fans need us to do, which is to to get this team winning again, to get it winning and, and to push the places that no one thought was possible. And that's been my, my sort of track, track record with my staff. We... We went back-to-back podiums with the women when, when we hadn't been to one before. We qualified for a World Cup when people said a women's coach would never be able to do that for us. And yeah, it's uh, let's let's see what we can bring to TFC. It's it's pretty clear this is a city that demands you to win. It's an ownership group that expect to win, and a group of players that are, are hungry to get back to winning ways. So uh, I'll be given. Everything I've got is a custodian of this club while I'm allowed to be that custodian, and I've got that honour to, uh, to to find that winning way. John, how would you describe the terms you left the, the national team on? Yeah, I mean, the messages from the players, uh, the emotional conversations you've had with guys have been amazing. I mean, uh, you, you look at you know what we achieved this year with 
with the team that, that went into Nations League. We won three games. We lost our first final in 20 years away to the US in a in their stadium, and you know came out of that into a Gold Cup with with a development team and got to a quarter final, knocked out on penalties. I mean, it's been a, another great year, I think, with a, with a lot of firsts. So. You know, my players have, have been amazing. Um, and again, these are relationships and memories that I'm going to treasure. Um, and I'll be seeing hopefully some of them in MLS and maybe some of them for Toronto FC at some stage. I think those those relationships will, will probably allow us to, to put some of them in red shirts in time. Who knows? And so many of your former players have come out and talked about you in glowing terms. And I remember talking to so many of them uh, during the lead-up to that World Cup. Um, but there there have been many reports, John, as you're, I'm sure, well aware. And I, I did, I noticed during your introductory media conference with, with TFC, you did mention uh, in regards to some of the challenges with the, the national team, that there were some individuals with deals that challenged the culture. Um could you expand on that? What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I think what you've, what you've felt is after coming out of the World Cup qualification, you know, the, the, the team, the game's now moving to another level. And when a team goes out on strike and they're setting up player unions, some players haven't signed for the player union, some players are in the player union, uh, some players are getting commercial deals, some players aren't, um, there's no uh, compensation package being signed, you know, there's a lot of what you, you would call noise and clutter around the team, a lot of what you haven't had to deal with in that men's environment, so, you know, when you look at all that clutter, it, it really does strain, it puts a strain on, on, on a team, it's new, it's, it's different, it's the focus isn't just between the white lines anymore. You know, the focus and energy is going into you know, having legal battles and off the pitch. Um, and that's, that's not easy for, for any coaching staff. It's not easy for a player group. It's not easy for a federation. So if there's been any sort of uh, turmoil, I'd say, you know, it's just been a natural evolution of a country that's, growing from being a team that's never been to a World Cup in 36 years to a team that now is expecting those next levels and, and pushing those next levels. So, you know, I think that's, that's the fairest part in terms of players. And again, we've had a great relationship. The, the last, you know, camps, we, we all have fun. We enjoy, enjoy our work. We, we put a shift in. And, you know, naturally in team environments, players aren't happy with selection or, you know, playing minutes. I mean, they're just, just normal features. Um, and again, you know, players like Milan Boyan, I think, you know, his name was mentioned. I mean, yes. that was just preposterous. I mean, rubbish, absolute rubbish. I mean, Milan was good at that. You know, his name was mentioned in that light. So it is what it is. I mean, this is people want to, you know, tell stories as, as coaches leave at the end of the day. You know, I'm really proud of some of the crazy achievements uh, me, the staff, the organization achieved in a 12 year period. And sometimes it's time. Five years is a long time and nice big deep breath and on to the next thing. 
it, it's a pretty sensational story, though, John. <laughs> yeah, to 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 lead well both the the women's and then the men's team uh, to to the World Cup, um, to have success with both of those programs, and then to to coach the biggest club team in the same country is is there such a thing as a coaching treble? Are you are you thinking about the coaching treble? Look, it, I'm just excited to be in front of those fans at Field. I'm telling you, they, you know, when we qualify for that World Cup. 2022, the Jamaica game, and they were chanting Atiba's name. I can't remember a moment in my football career that I felt more emotional or connected to to the sport. Um, and even 2019, that match against the US, and we went over to the corner. It's the first time I banged that drum with with Ozo and the uh, and the fans. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just a. It's a proper football city. Uh, you feel it's a proper football crowd who understand the game and and want to be successful. So, you know, I'll be giving it my best. Uh, and when I when I give it my best with my staff, we we tend to get somewhere, uh, and that's the plan. So, so you mentioned Milan Milan uh, Borjan, who was yes uh, explicitly mentioned in some reports. Uh, how would you describe your relationship with Alfonso Davies? Yeah, good, good. I mean, uh, the relationship with Alfonso has been, been great. I mean, this is a Champions League winner. This is a player who is just wanting to push the levels always. He's experienced um, all those next levels in coaching and, and he's experienced it in his football career. So, you know, that relationship's been solid. He's, he's always been respectful. He's always um, given what I think is his best for his country. And, you know, behind the scenes, he's just a cool kid. He's a, he's a great uh, ambassador for this sport. So, again, you know, people want to, you know, tell stories and, you know, say say the things they want to say, but until they're in the environment day in, day out, yeah, yeah you've just got to, you've got to take, take, uh, take the rough with the smooth, I guess. Yeah, there's been a lot of rough since qualifying for for that World Cup for this national team, John, and and that was such a high, and and it gave uh, so many casual soccer fans uh, a reason to to pay attention to soccer in this country. And and since then, it's been negative story after negative story, including Jason DeVos coming out and talking about bankruptcy. And you mentioned the collective bargaining stuff that that's happening right now. I I know it's it's no longer your organization anymore, um, and maybe you can't do this, but. I, it would really make Canadian soccer fans feel better if you could give them a reason to be optimistic about the the national team uh, outside of the fact that there's going to be a home world cup here in 2026. Yeah, I think, I think there's a a great squad of players that have got an amazing uh, amount of potential and talent to push the next level. They, when they're focused and they're given the support they need, we've seen it. You know, they can find that next level. They can beat the U.S. at home. They can beat Mexico. They can go undefeated in 17 matches. They can push Belgium, the number two team in the world. They can go within a quarter of an inch of beating the semi-finalists Morocco or drawing with Morocco at a World Cup. They can beat Japan, which we did. They can get to a Nations League final, which which we did. We've just got to get behind this player group and and help them, you know, achieve and focus on playing football. 
yeah, it, it feels like they, they need money. <laughs> Honestly, John, yeah, it, it feels like um, the financial part of it is is the part that is is holding so much of it up. And I don't know if there is an answer to it, but I mean, say you were the czar of Canadian soccer. Say say you were at the very top of that pyramid. Is there something that can be done to 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 smooth the waters that exist in Canada soccer right now? Ben, the past is the past. Um, um absolutely fixated now on the future which is Toronto FC that's my challenge uh, that's where I'm heading and those questions uh, for the next man that takes over my position and for those people in the leadership roles at Canada Soccer who are well aware of you know the enormity of the tasks they have ahead of them I've made my my opinions very clear I've shared my thoughts and ideas you know in the past and you know, that's that's where it'll stay. I'm ready for a future with TFC and super excited. And, and people are excited to, to see uh, what you have in store for, for a team that feels like it's at the bottom and there's nowhere to go but up. What, what do you think, um, as far as transferring your skills from a national team program to a club team where it's, it's a more daily basis job, how do you think your skills translate and, and what are the adjustments you, you see yourself having to make? Yeah, I think high performance is high performance. I think that's that hasn't changed. I think there's you know, I've had a real good experience working with the Jonathan Davids, the Tejon Buchanan's, Kyle Lawrence, Azarios, Alfonso Davies, you know, players who've experienced winning high level high level football in the world, Milan Boyans. So th- th- there's a lot I've learned from those players individually, collectively, but also just you know how to how to bring groups together in difficult moments. I think there's there's a real transfer there of the cultural framework that we would operate and ultimately the tactical framework that we'd bring across. I think football's football. Things that have to change would be, you know, you're not trying to cram six months of work into, you know, one or two weeks uh, when you bring these players together. We get a full pre-season to implement our tactical blueprints our tactical frameworks and I think that's 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 where I'm excited about that. You know, we, we get the time to build a culture and build a tactical identity for this team and that's what we're planning to do. This is this is where I get that runway, which is gonna be brilliant. Yeah, uh, and and can't wait for uh, what you have in store for the remainder of this season, but then looking ahead to next season and perhaps some personnel changes, but also getting to see Leo Messi for the first time at at BMO Field. I know a lot of TFC fans are are ecstatic about that and can't wait to see what the ticket prices are in the secondary market for for that game. Um, What have you thought about uh, Messi's impact in in such a brief period of time on on MLS? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been nothing short of remarkable. Um, I mean, I, we've seen a lot of players come to MLS and have an impact, but nothing like I've seen with Lionel Messi. And I just think it shows that he is the greatest of all time. And North American marketplaces are going to see the greatest footballer of all time. And I don't know if there'll be another one like him because he just has the full package, not just the talent, but work ethic and character. I mean, I'm I'm going to be blessed, uh, hopefully coaching the same stadiums as him and Toronto FC fans will get a chance to see him next season. Amazing. 
It is amazing. Uh, your career in this country in in soccer has been amazing as well, John. And uh, perhaps uh, you'll you'll rehab yet another soccer program at BMO Field with Toronto FC. Thanks so much for doing this. Best of luck going forward. Amazing, Ben. And we'll we'll see you in the future. Sounds good, John. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. All right, this is John Herdman, Toronto FC head coach. Um, there you heard it as well. The past is in the past, everybody. Don't ask him about how they can fix things at the national team level. Because, I mean, he has, he's right. He's, he's relayed some of his opinions about the way things were run. Uh, most notably at the conclusion of that Nations League final. Disappointing 2-0 loss to the Americans. But, uh, yeah, no doubt. That was the precipitating factor here in him deciding to leave a team that's going to play home World Cup in uh, 2026. This guy is calculated, though, as well. Like he, I, and he's upfront about it. Talked about having a new agency take over his career and his affairs and that, you know, things kind of work in five-year cycles, which is also understandable. I don't know if that, like, we should feel too cynical about that. That is generally the way things work, even if you don't plan it out. But uh, no doubt, John Herdman doesn't anticipate retiring as the, the most wing, winningest manager in Toronto FC History. All right, Blair and Barker is next, and no doubt they will talk about the waiver situation that is now concluded with the Anaheim Angels uh, as a couple of guys that might have helped the Blue Jays were acquired in uh, Harrison Bader and Hunter Renfro, a couple of right-handed outfielders. They go to the Reds. Uh, Randall Gritchick went nowhere, also a right-handed hitting outfielder. But the way the, the waiver thing works, which certainly feels like it needs at least a tweak, if not a complete overhaul, because, boy, there are some teams that are on the outside of the playoff picture looking in in the Reds and the Guardians that maybe significantly uh, help their playoff chances today. But the way it works is that you get everybody you claim for if you're the only team that claims for them. So if the Blue Jays wanted one of Randall Gritchick, Harrison Bader, and Hunter Renfro, they couldn't claim for all three because there's a potential that you end up with all three players. And that would have been no good. So instead, uh, the Blue Jays end up with none of them. And instead, uh, Harrison Bader, Hunter Renfro off to the Cincinnati Reds who were trying to snap their playoff drought in a surprising team that, I mean, most expected to be at the bottom of the National League Central standings. All right, Blue Jays off day today. Start a series in Denver against the Rockies tomorrow. You know who's going to take you through it? Blair and Barker. Uh, they had this uh, radio station for the next two hours. Enjoy them. I'll be back tomorrow. This has been the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.